this, in this service. First Peter, or First Timothy 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, let me begin by asking a question this morning. What do you mostly tend to pray for? Just think of this past week. Let this past week float in front of you for a moment. What did you mostly pray for this past week? I think you would agree with me that it's rather easy for us, isn't it, for our prayers to become, you could say, rather narrow. Let's say you're in a situation of starting a new business. And getting into a new business, getting one off the ground, that can easily just take your life over. And therefore, that tends then also to become the dominant content of our prayers. We have to be careful with that. Or let's say you come into a situation of conflict. Again, it's easy for these situations of conflict to become all-consuming. And therefore also to become, you could say, all-consuming in our prayers. And it's instructive in this regard to think of Timothy and then also to think of Paul. Both of these men, Timothy and Paul, were often involved in situations of rather intense conflict, especially when it came to the Jews who did not accept Jesus Christ as the long-awaited Messiah. If you go through the book of Acts, you see this time and time again. Paul, and later on Paul and Timothy, they come into loggerheads with the Jews who who refuse to, to accept Jesus Christ as the Messiah. They come into loggerheads with them at Antioch, at Thessalonica, at Corinth, at Ephesus, and more places. Perhaps you also know about the situation of Apollos. Apollos appeared on the scene in the third missionary journey with Paul, or between the second and the third, 
And that was a huge blessing for Paul and Timothy to have Apollos appear on the scene. And I say that because Apollos was well-versed in the Old Testament, the Old Testament Scriptures, and therefore he was able, and here I quote, to powerfully refute the Jews in public. Now in our passage, the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he instructs Timothy in a very basic matter. It's the matter of prayer. About what reality especially should shape and mold our prayers. Also in these kind of situations of conflict. And also about the specific content these prayers should have also when working with those around him. May proclaim God's word then under this theme. The Apostle Paul urges Timothy to pray for all peoples, especially those in authority, so that as God's people we may live quiet and well-ordered lives. We'll see two things this afternoon. First of all, the peculiar time explaining this instruction and secondly, the timeliness of this instruction for us as well. Now, before we get into the text proper, we should orientate ourselves somewhat. This letter is a letter from Paul to Timothy. Let's recap, first of all, who these two individuals are. Paul, let's start with him. Paul first appears on the pages in Scripture at that scene of the stoning of Stephen to death. Paul, that time called Saul, Saul, he became a very fierce opponent of the church of Jesus Christ. And he became that in a time in which this New Testament church was just getting itself off the ground, as it were, and therefore was in a very vulnerable state. And that, that put Paul in a very, very deadly peril. Think about it. It's amazing that our Savior from on high did not just strike Paul down in his wrath. And Paul speaks about this in 1 Timothy 1, just the chapter just before our passage. And Paul does this with a tone of deep amazement and deep gratitude. Formerly, I was a blasphemer, says Paul, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But, this is what has Paul so excited, but I received mercy. And that reality that even he, even Paul received mercy, that even he was mercied, that always amazed Paul and that always pushed him forward in going on in his work. And our Lord mercied him for his own personal welfare, for his rescue. But our Lord had mercy on him also to specially use Paul in a very special way in his kingdom. Think of what our Lord said to Ananias when he was commanded to go to Paul. The Paul whom he had just struck down with blindness. Ananias, go. For this man is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. 
You see, since the time of Abraham, God had restricted His saving kingdom to the nation of Israel. But that was never the way it was intended to stay. That was always intended from the start already to be a temporary matter. God always intended to bless Abraham so that Abraham in turn would become a blessing to all nations. And because of what happened then, Paul ended up changing radically. He went from the persecutor of the church to the apostle to the Gentiles. Literally, he became a teacher to the nations. Now, that doesn't mean that Paul therefore ignored the Jews. Not at all. In his travels, you can read about them in the book of Acts. Paul, each time again, always went to the Jews first. And at the same time, he always made clear to the Jews, each time again, I also have to go to the Gentiles. And that was something. I always have to go to the Gentiles. That was something that really irritated the Jews who did not accept Jesus Christ as the great Messiah. And because of this, Paul became someone whom these Jews hated. In a way, it's very remarkable if you think about it. These Jews, what they did, they held to the Old Testament Scriptures. And so did Paul. They both did. But whereas Paul rightly saw and accepted how the Old Testament testified to Jesus of Nazareth as the long-awaited Messiah, many Jews refused to accept that. They could not accept how the Messiah had to suffer. This aspect that the Messiah had to suffer, that was a stumbling block to them. They couldn't get their heads wrapped around that. And then, to add insult to injury, Paul had the audacity to say that since they rejected the Messiah, now God would gather in his people from all nations. Just think of what happened when Paul was arrested in Jerusalem at the end of his third missionary journey. That's why we read from where we read. By motioning with his hand in that state, Paul was able to quiet the crowd down, the whole mob. He was able to quiet them down so that he could tell them something of what had happened to him. And they listened, we heard that, they listened with rapt attention when he spoke about what happened to him on the road to Damascus. What happened to him thereafter? They listened. You could hear a pin drop. Until, until Paul came to the point in his story where he told them that God said to him, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So that's Paul. Now let's turn our attention to Timothy. We first run across Timothy in Paul's second missionary journey. The brothers in the church at Lystra and Iconium they brought this young man, Timothy, to Paul's attention as a very promising disciple. And Paul right away saw in him too a potential in him as someone who could really help him in his work in the service of the gospel. And therefore Paul had him circumcised so that he could come with him into the synagogues. And more than that, he had this man called into the ministry, ordained. And Timothy then became a very 
key servant, fellow servant in the service of the gospel with, Jesus, with Paul. He became a very key person to help Paul in the fulfilling of his mandate, his very special mandate to be, to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. At times, Paul, or at times, Timothy would be right there beside Paul. At other times, as you read through the book of Acts, Timothy's not on scene with Paul, but he's where Paul was. Paul left him behind there. Why? To finish off the work that he had begun in that city, work that still needed to be completed, even while Paul was forced to move on elsewhere. This also explains what 1 Timothy, that letter, is all about. It's a letter of Paul to Timothy about the work that they are both very, very deeply invested in. 1 Timothy 1 verse 3, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And Paul sends this letter then, he sends this letter to Timothy to instruct him in his work, to encourage him in his work, to give him directions in how to tackle certain issues that have risen, particularly now in the church at Ephesus. In the first chapter, Paul recounts, the first chapter's letter, Paul recounts how he himself came into this work. And then in verse 18, he gives Timothy this very basic, this very general charge. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. And then in our passage, Paul begins, you could say, to particularize this charge. And he starts with first things first. Timothy waged the good warfare. And now let me get into more detail, more specifics about how you should go about this. How should Timothy start every day again? I could ask, how should we as co-workers of God today too. How should we start every day again? The answer, I think we all know it, the answer is in prayer. First of all then, this is verse 1 of our passage, first of all then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. And for Paul this is rather evident, this is not a negotiable starting point. He uses four different words for prayer here. Timothy, see to it, and also make sure that the elders whom you are training, make sure that they too, they see to it that you always begin your work with prayer. And we, we need reminders about this every once in a while. But this ought not surprise us, especially if we've been in the faith for a long time. Think of the catechism, that summarization of Scripture. What does the catechism call prayer? It calls prayer the most important part of our thankfulness. It underlines the catechism again. We should not expect any blessing whatsoever. We should not expect any blessings on our work apart from prayer. We should always start with prayer. But Paul does not just charge Timothy 
generally to pray. Not even for prayers to, Lord, bless the work I'm about to begin again today. Rather, he charges Timothy that prayers be made for all people. Not just for some people, but for all people. Why? Well, the answer is found in verses 3 and 4. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, we should not have misunderstood this. It is true that God, is it true that God wants every single individual in this world to be saved? And that we should therefore pray that for every single individual? No, that's not what God wants. True, our God, we need to be clear on this, our God does not take delight in the death of the wicked. But consider how our Savior Himself praised the high priestly prayer in John 17. He prays to the Father, I am praying for them, that means His disciples, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom You have given Me, that they, for they are Yours. So that's not Paul's point. Paul's point rather here is this. In his saving work, in the saving work of God, all peoples are included. Not just Jews, but also Greeks. Not just Greeks, but also Persians. Not just Persians, but also Asians. Even Americans. Even Canadians. And Timothy, given that very basic reality, Timothy, pray for all people. Now, why does Paul at this point bring this to the fore? And he does so because of the time. With the time of the long-awaited Messiah having finally come into this world, it's now also time for the gospel, the good news of what he has done, it's time for that to break out beyond the borders of Israel. It's time for that to go to every nation, to every family, to every people group, to every tribe. As we already noted, the Jews had a very difficult time coming to grips with this reality. And that would have come across also in their prayers. But Paul, a man filled with the Spirit of our Savior, Paul is very passionate about this. Not to rub it in their face. No, no, not at all. He's very passionate about this. Timothy, keep this reality about our God and what He intends to do. Keep this reality in your mind from the very start. Even in your opening prayers, in your beginning prayers, Timothy, pray for all people. Don't pray just for the Jews. And no, Timothy, this is not a betrayal of the ancient faith. It's not a betrayal of the Old Testament. Contrary to what our Jewish opponents often say to us, this is not a betrayal of Abraham. This is not a betrayal of Moses or of David or of any of the prophets. 
Neither is this in any way a betrayal of the God of our fathers. Rather, verse 3 and 4, this is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. What does God want? What has God always wanted? The answer is the salvation of all people. When all is said and done, what will we see? Well, the Apostle John, he sees the answer to this question ahead of time. In Revelation 7, verse 9, John reports what he sees there. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, a crowd standing before the throne of the Lamb, clothed in white, with palm branches in their hands, crying out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Timothy, this even fits with who our God is. Paul here highlights a very central tenet of Judaism, a tenet that is 100% true. God's people, they have always confessed, the Lord our God is one. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, that's the first text Israelite children learned. There is no other God. He alone is God. He is sovereign. He made everything. He made everyone. He upholds it all. And what has this one and only God done? He has come into this world with salvation. He has opened up a way of salvation. He has provided a mediator. A mediator between God and man. Whether that man happens to be Greek or Italian or Canadian or Jew. A mediator who has given himself as a ransom for all. Not just for Jews, but for all. Jesus Christ is the Savior. Not just of Jews, but of the world. That's true. For many years, God restricted this salvation work to the Jews. But with the coming of Jesus Christ into the world, the time of that restriction has passed. In the words of verse 6, following the New King James here, Christ Jesus gave Himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. And Paul understood that's why Jesus Christ took him, snatched him on the road to Damascus to testify to what happened. Not just to Jews, but now also to all nations and to all tribes and to all families and to all peoples. And that's also what Timothy is now involved with as well. So many Jews fail to understand this and became increasingly offended at Paul. But Paul himself continued to appeal to them because Paul realized what was at stake for them as well. You can hear that in his heart in verse 7. 
For this I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. No, fellow Jews, I am not lying. Let me appeal to you again and again, even as stones come hurling my way. Please, hear me out. I testify to the true and the only way. The way that's true to the Word of God. The way that's true to who our God is. The way that's true to reality. The way of faith in Jesus Christ who has finally come into this world and indeed has defeated sin, has defeated death. He rose again from the dead. Timothy, as you interact also with the Jews in Ephesus, and there were many Jews in Ephesus, Timothy, press on with this appeal. Now we, of course, we live today in a very different time. That the gospel is for all nations. That's no longer a scandalous matter for us. Most of us, by far, I'm quite sure, are of Gentile origin. And we do not have to deal today with a Jewish backlash, a very powerful backlash like Paul and Timothy had to deal with in their time. And yet, in the grand scheme of matters, we live in the same time. We live in the time of the gospel going out to all nations, to all tribes, to all families, to all social classes. And our Savior has not given us unique roles like He gave to Paul and by extension then also to Timothy. At the same time, we too, we are also called to be co-workers with our Savior in His reaching out to all nations and to all tribes, particularly in this last phase of God's redemptive work in this world. We too were called to carry out to hold out in this world in which we find ourselves the word of truth, to advertise the reality of it, to explain it, to teach it, to illustrate it. And we're called to do that to all. And this gives the words of Paul a very modern relevance. And that's our second point. Okay, keeping in mind now then what we just heard, let's now have a, another look at what Paul exhorts Timothy to do. Let's do that in order to hear the Spirit speaking to us in our situation today as well. Now just as Timothy, though not as special evangelists working for Paul, just as Timothy, we too are called to wage the good warfare, holding fast, holding faith, and a good conscience. In other words, we're called to fight the good fight in everything we do. 
So where should we start? Where should we start every day again? This is not just a Sunday task. This is a seven-day-a-week task. Where should we start in every venture again? Where should we start in every new church program again? Where should we start as parents? Or as teachers of God's Word? What about as tradesmen? Or as students? Well, the answer is quite clear. We should start in prayer. And not just in prayer for what we do, but in prayer for all people. And the point here is not so much every single individual in this whole wide world, but for all with whom we might interact and rub shoulders, regardless of their nationality, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their social status. For just think, does not our God want to save people from every tribe and nation and race? And Paul uses no less than four different words here. Praying for all people, we should pray prayers of supplication and entreaties that they might, these people might receive specific help, like, let's say, calmness in a very tense circumstance in their family, or comfort in dealing with loss, and then also prayers of intercession. Even though they might not worship God, we should intercede for them. And do that, we should do that in light of specific hardships that we know they're going through, or specific struggles, or in light of dangers that they have to face. And Paul speaks of prayers of thanksgiving. We should thank the Lord when he gives these people whom we run across every day again a child or let's say a better home, or needed health care. That's fundamentally important for them. But it's fundamentally important also for us to foster within us a right approach, to foster within us a zeal for them to come to faith. Is that not the all-important matter of our day? There's a real urgency here, even more so today than in the days of Paul and Timothy. For the reality is, God, our God, alone is one. The one and only mediator for all people has come. And He is coming again. It's striking then how Paul, having said these very astounding words, Paul in very quick order moves from praying for all peoples to praying for kings and all who are in high position. In other words, for all those whom our God has put in positions of authority over us. And here too, Paul uses and speaks the word all. In other words, the current emperor, but also all other officials in our context today for federal authorities, for provincial authorities, for municipal authorities, 
for Prime Minister Trudeau, for Premier Ebby, for MPs, for MLAs, for judges, for police officers. And says, Paul, pray for their welfare. It's instructive to note that one of the emperors of that time was no one less than Nero, a wicked, a cruel emperor responsible for the death of many, many believers. But that doesn't detract Paul from this point. Why? Why is Paul not distracted here especially? Well, the answer is, Paul, as we've seen already, he has a wide vision. We are in the world of the one God, and we are in the days of the gospel going to the ends of the earth. That's important for us to keep in mind in our day as well. Especially, it's important to keep that in mind, especially when we have trouble praying for certain rulers with whom we are very much at odds. Just think, how great is such a ruler, whoever that might be? How great is such a ruler compared to our God, the one God? And notice how Paul goes on. Why should we pray for those in authority over us? Should we pray so that they should come to faith? Well, that would be wonderful. And to pray that is indeed very fitting. We can pray that for Prime Minister Trudeau. Would it not be wonderful if he came to the faith? But notice how Paul answers that question. That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. In other words, that we may lead a life where there is civil stability, where there is law and order in society around us, allowing many things of society to happen, where we do not need to flee, to get up and run away from here. Now, why does Paul want such conditions to prevail? Whether in his day or in the days of, or at his place, or let's say in the days of Timothy and Ephesus, or in our day, today in 2023 in North America, why does Paul want those kind of conditions to prevail? Is it so that we each can still pursue the American dream? So that we each can eat, drink, and be happy, at least to a certain extent? So that nothing gets in the way of taking a trip down south? No. Rather, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, and then it comes, godly and dignified in every way. A godly life. That's a life in living fellowship with God. A life that seeks to be obedient to God, to be 
have your words shaped by God, to have our actions, our conduct molded by our God. That's a godly life. And a dignified life, those are connected concepts, that's a life that is respectful. Respectful of others as being created in the image of God. Respectful of institutions. Institutions that God has ordained, God the creator of this world has ordained in our world. For instance, the institution of marriage or authority structures or our binary nature is either male or female and this list can go on. And Paul then continues in verse 3, this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Such a lifestyle, characterized by godliness and dignity, that is something so conducive to salvation, to the salvation of those around us. And is that not the thing that counts so much, especially in our day? Such living, what that does, it testifies to this world around us. It testifies to this world about the goodness of the gospel. And the Spirit uses that testimony to work and to strengthen faith. In a recent senior catechism class, we recently noted how our God uses civil authorities, even those who are far from godly, God uses civil authorities today to to restrain so much evil, to hold so much evil in check that would otherwise just break loose in our society. But Paul here, what he does, he takes this one step further. A stable civil setting not only restrains evil, it does that, and that's important, but it also provides a venue for us as God's fellow workers in this world, not only to preach the gospel, but also to illustrate the gospel and to live it in our marriages, in our families, in our business dealings, in our workplaces, to illustrate online. And as such, in this way, to promote the one and only gospel of Jesus Christ. Living godly and dignified lives, whether young or old, whether married or unmarried, is so important for the gospel in this world. For the saving cause of our Savior also in our society. There is nothing that supports and that corroborates the preaching and evangelism more. There's nothing that supports and corroborates that more than godly living. Practical godly living tasted and experienced by those around us. There's nothing more powerful than godly marriage where husbands reflect the love of Christ. And where the wife reflects the devotion of the church. There's nothing more powerful than godly families. 
where members truly care for each other very deeply. And again, do so in self-sacrificial love. Do so in a way that reflects our caring and our loving God. And Paul and Timothy are both ordained preachers. But not all God's people in those days were. And not all God's people today are that either. At the same time, Paul, he so understood the huge importance of godly and dignified lives. As also our catechism puts it in Lord's Day 32, by our godly walk, we may win our neighbors for Christ. That especially explains why we should pray for our civil authorities and why we should pray for a civil setting that is quiet, that is conducive for living and functioning as lights shining also in this world and also in our culture. Beloved, here Paul encouraging Timothy to ever start his work with prayer. To pray for all, knowing the comprehensive salvation plans of our God and Savior, our Savior who has ascended into heaven. Here Paul encouraging Timothy to pray especially for those in authority over us that we may live quiet and well ordered lives in godliness, in dignity. And to pray then that our godliness may grow and may blossom. Our godliness as individuals, our godliness as church. And that in this way, we in our day too, in our corner of life, in our corner of history as well, that we may serve powerfully for the advancing of the cause of our Lord that has meant, that means everything for us today too, that is our only hope in this world, especially now in these last days of redemptive history, especially given what our God has done also for each and every one of us. Truly, that That is the up-to-date starting point for us to live in our society, in our culture, especially in our time, in each and every situation again. Amen.